Continuing on in Colossians this evening, uh, we're in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Let's pay careful attention to the Lord's very word. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we pray that you would do the work of speaking your word to us, speaking it to our very hearts, that we might come to know you more, that we might be conformed to Christ more. Build us up by this means of grace, we pray. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, last Lord's Day evening, we looked at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, the first opening uh, salvo in this chapter. And there Paul says, Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. That's his summary, that's his introduction, really, to, to everything he's going to say in the rest of chapter 3. He's going to look at what it looks like to set your minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. But the language that he uses there, and, and that he uses in verses 1 through 4, can sound a little bit abstract to our ears. He says that we're alive with Christ in heaven. That, that, that we are to set our minds on things above, not on, the, not on things on the earth. And that, that sounds very lofty and very spiritual. And, and it is. It is lofty. It is spiritual. But I think, I think we, can, we can hear that language and, and lose sight of how practical this is. And verses 5 through 11 show us just how practical this is. As Paul unpacks what he means when he says, don't set your mind on things of the earth. That's, that's what he's doing now. He's saying, this is what it looks like. To not set your mind on the things of earth. This is how it works out practically. This is what it looks like to be dead to the world's lifestyle. And as we look at it, it's really, it's really straightforward, isn't it? In these verses, Paul is saying, keep working at, at putting off, at breaking those old sinful habits and keep, keep working at moving away from the lifestyle of this evil world. And he picks out some particulars. He targets lust. He targets uh, worshiping idols. He targets uh, uh, anger. He targets speaking lies. So this is the nitty-gritty of the Christian life, not abstract, disconnected spirituality. This is down-to-earth practical truth. It's, it's lofty, awesome truth about where we are in Christ and where we're to set our minds, but it's, been, it's being applied here to the very concrete issues of our lives. And, and brothers and sisters, uh, this, this shows us we can't keep the theology at arm's length. 
It doesn't do us any good out there, just, just in our heads. It has to work itself out in our, in our lives. It has to penetrate to our hearts. It needs to permeate our habits and our actions. It needs to interrupt the way we're doing things and challenge the way we're doing things and reorient the way we think and the way we live. And, and, and you could say our theology really needs to make a mess of our lives so that we can get things straightened out according to God's Word. It needs to, it needs to inter, interrupt and challenge the way we are living. Our, our habits. How, how I treat my wife. How I treat my children. How I do my work. How I interact with my neighbors. All these things. Our theology needs to, needs to drive these things. If it's not doing that, it's not doing its job. So this is, this is what Paul's doing here. He's saying this is what it looks like practically. To not set your mind on the things of earth. And his, his point here is this. It's strip off the lifestyle of the old man. Put to death the, the habits of the old man. Set it aside. Throw it away. Because that's not who you are now. You're, you, you're, you, you've put on Christ. You're already in Christ. So put up everything that has no part in Christ. So two points as we consider this together. First, strip off the lifestyle of the old man. That's verses 5 through 9a. And then we look at the reason we're to strip off, throw away the lifestyle of the old man. That's our second point, the reason. Because you've put on the new man. It's verses 9b through 11. So number one, point number one, strip off the lifestyle of the old man. Verses 5 through 9a. Paul gives us in this section two lists of sins, and they each have five sins in them. The first list we see is in verse 5. He says this, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, let's start with, with this command, and then we'll dive into the particulars of the list. He says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth. What's Paul doing here? Well, yet again, he's reminding the Colossians that the gospel always undergirds obedience. He does this everywhere in his letters. He does it here too. Over and over, he says, this is what God has done, saved you by Christ graciously. Therefore, this is how you must respond. And he's going to return to the theology of this therefore that he starts with here in just a few verses. He's going to say, you've been raised with Christ, the new man, so, so live like that. Don't live like the old man. That's going to be his focus on the second point. But before he even gets started with how we're to, to put to death the, these deeds of the old man, he begins with a reminder of the gospel. Right in that word, therefore. He's, he's couching the whole list of imperatives in the gospel. Surrounding this command to put off the old man with God's gracious gospel. So then he says, put to death your members which are on earth. He's referring to our bodies there, but, but not our bodies just in themselves. Paul doesn't think our bodies are inherently evil or sinful. He's referring to our bodies as instruments of sin. He's, saying, he's using figurative language here to say, don't live the way the world lives. Put to death the sinful habits that your body carries out. This is the same way Christ speaks in Matthew 5, where he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it, and, uh, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
It's the same thing Paul is saying here. It's violent and extreme language. Put it to death, Paul says. Our tendency is, not, is, is, to, is to not take sin seriously. But we are at war, brothers and sisters. Our, our, uh, our standards say uh, we're, we're engaged in a continual and irreconcilable war with sin. And the sinful lifestyle of the evil of this, this world and the habits of that lifestyle, which we so quickly fall into, those things need to go. We need to have no mercy on those habits as they crop up in our lives. We're so soft on our sin. We, we, we love to indulge our sin and, and, and just pursue halfway measures. Paul says, put it to death. Kill it. We see a, a vivid picture of, of what this looks like uh, as Israel goes in to, to conquer the promised land. God has established his kingdom. He's foreshadowing the new creation here in, in, in the book of Joshua as the people come into the promised land. And so they're supposed to bring God's judgment uh, in a, a picture for us of the final judgment on the nations that are there. And, and they show them no mercy. It's hard to read those accounts in Joshua but it's, it's showing the people just how sinful sin is, how, how wicked it, how much of an affront it is to God. And this is a picture for us of how sinful the, the world around us is and how we are to have no, uh, no patience, no tolerance for sin in ourselves. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is the deadly danger of letting sin remain in us, letting the habits of sin stay in us. They'll corrupt and pollute us. So we must put it to death. Well, what is it that we must put to death? The first list that we get here, starting in verse 5, uh, has, has these sins that seem to relate to the seventh commandment, which of course is about adultery, and then the tenth commandment, which is about covetousness. Paul, Paul starts here with the most obvious outward form of sexual sin, outright sexual immorality. He's talking about adultery. And it, it, this, this includes, I think, as a category, all immoral sexual actions. And then he drills down past that to the heart of, of adultery, which is uncleanness or impurity and passion. This is the lust, that, the, the sinful lust that underlies sexual sin. This is what Paul is warning us against, this, this desire that subverts and perverts God's order and God's design, a selfish desire. Paul is going after both the action, the outward action, and the inner heart issue. Why does, why does Paul start with this particular sin? Well, sexual immorality, lust, was a huge problem in the pagan culture that surrounded him and that surrounded the Colossian church. The Colossian church has a lot of Gentiles in it, so a lot of people coming out of a pagan background and culture. And we see from Paul's letters over in Corinthians that uh, sexual immorality is a real threat to the church. And this is so relevant for our culture, isn't it? I mean, we are in a, a hyper-sexualized culture. It's everywhere. It's, 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 uh, we're, we're drowning in it, and our culture is full of this. And it's brash, it's arrogant, it's high-handed against God. Celebrating it. So it's a big issue. Uh, but this isn't the only reason Paul confronts this particular sin. I think he, he also confronts, puts the spotlight on this particular sin because it's especially dangerous. It's, it can be spiritually deadly. Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, If your body's joined to Christ, 
how can you use your body, which belongs to Christ, for sexual immorality? How can, if you have union with Christ, how can you have sinful union with sex, in sexual immorality? It's deadly, and Paul wants to warn us against it. Well, Paul continues to go even deeper here. He goes on. He, he started with sinful actions, sexual immorality, impurity. He's gone deeper. He, he's, he's penetrated to the heart, which is, which is lust. But then he goes even past that. He, he talks about evil desire, to, 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 to covetousness itself, which is a consuming greed and desire for anything that doesn't belong to me. And Paul calls this idolatry. So he brings us from the Tenth Commandment all the way back around to the First the sin of having anything else as God. And again, why does Paul single out this one? Well, it's the root of all sin. Uh, Jewish teaching of the time was that Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden was covetousness, which is idolatry. It's the root of all sin, a heart that worships and loves anything else besides God with the kind of worship and love that belong to God alone. And this, is, this also is rampant in our day, isn't it? It's outright. People don't hide, uh, hide uh, greed and covetousness. In fact, it's a marketing tool now. Not that it needs any help. John Calvin, writing long before the advent of modern advertising, said that the human heart is a factory pumping out idols. Our hearts are wired for worship, but the fall has twisted them to worship everything else besides God. And this is, this is the root of our sin. So what, what, let's, let's bring this close to home for ourselves. What idols tempt our hearts? What, what are the things which occupy our minds most? What are the things that drive us, that, that, we, that get us out of bed in the morning? Maybe it's work or financial security or, or, or it's in your family to have, to have an ideal family life or a particular political cause or, or a spouse or, 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 or many other good things. They become deadly when we make them idols. If we give them the worship, the love, the attention, the obedience that God alone should have, they're deadly for us. So this is, this is the first list of sins Paul tells us to put to death. Focuses in on sexual immorality and covetousness and idolatry. Are you putting these things to death? Are you actively fighting against these habits of our sinful world? Not just in your actions, but, but deep, deep, deep at the heart level. We so, we so easily make light of sin, don't we? Um, and in a culture like ours, which is so saturated with it, which promotes sexual sin and promotes greed and idolatry, we can forget the weight, the awfulness of sin. And, and that's where Paul goes next to address that very thing. In verse 6, he says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So before he can go on with the next list of sins he has in mind, he stops and he mentions the wrath of God against our sins. It's as though he can't mention these sins he's just mentioned without also mentioning, uh, reminding us of the wrath of God that's coming on these sins. It's coming, he says. It's not just something in the future. It's something that's already coming, already being revealed against sin, as Romans 1.18 tells us. The wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. 
And we see this playing out around us. We, of course, should be careful not to draw a direct line from a particular sin to a particular cause of uh, instance of suffering in the world. But we should not avoid what the Bible also says, which is that suffering is a result of sin. The suffering caused by pandemics and hurricanes and wars, it's a result of sin. Adam's sin and all our sin. And all these things, all these things that, uh, that, that break out upon us, these are forerunners of God's wrath that is coming. And everyone who's a son of disobedience, as Paul says here, everyone who's born in sin and running in this sin is under that wrath. Verse 7 says, even you used to be one of these. You used to be one of these sons of disobedience. You used to live by sin. It was the principle that controlled you. It was the orientation of your heart. It was the all-encompassing manner of your life, continually running up your debt of sin to God and the wrath that he owed you. And again, why does Paul remind us of this here? The Colossians already know this. They're already trusting in Christ. They know this. Isn't Paul trying to tell us about what we're supposed to be putting to death and and putting off, the sin we're supposed to be fighting? Why interrupt here to talk about how we used to be under God's wrath for these things? I think it's because he cannot get over the gospel. Notice his language here. He says, these are the things you once walked in, but not anymore, he's saying. Verse 8 starts with, but now. He says, there's been a radical and total break God has taken you, a sinner, who, 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 who were stuck in this sin, dead in this sin, walking in this sin, and he's made you a holy one. He's made you alive in Christ, given you Christ's righteousness, raised you to, to be part of the new man in heaven. When Christ died, the old man died. When Christ rose, the new man was raised. That's what happened in Christ, and it's what's happened to you if you trust in Christ. That's why Paul interrupts this long list of sin here, this command to put sin to death, because he wants to remind us yet again to root the entire work of sanctification in the gospel. In the good news that you are not now who you were. That by grace God has made us dead to sin and made us alive in Christ. Brothers and sisters, knowing this is the oxygen in the lungs of our war against sin. So Paul stops here for a breath of gospel air, as it were, so we can press on in fighting these sins. And then he continues. He continues with the catalog of sins that we're to put off. The second list now, in verses 8 and 9a, he says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now, the previous list moved from actions to heart. Now, this list starts with the heart and moves out again to the actions. And these commands uh, seem to be an expansion of the sixth commandment, you shall not uh, 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 kill, and the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The, The first list of sins culminated in idolatry. That's where Paul went. Sin against God most of all. It includes some sin against each other, but its final point, then that first list, was sin against God. But here, it culminates in sin against each other. Sin against 
one another. He says, do not lie to one another. That's where this list lands. That's what all the anger and malice and filthy language is against. It's against each other. So the the first list was about sins that separate us from God. The second is about sins that separate us from each other. The danger of disunity in the church is never distant. It's never far away. We see it all in many places in the New Testament church. But, but there are times when the, the danger, I think, is increased, where there's a higher risk of it than others, right? Think of, uh, think of a, a forest fire. You know, Smokey the Bear tells you what the, what the fire risk is today. Well, there are certain conditions in the church which I think can raise the fire risk of disunity in the church. Not that there is a fire breaking out, but that the risk might be greater. And some of the conditions that we see around us could be signs of those things. As we're worn out from social distancing, worn out from these pressures of, of, uh, of COVID-19 and, and uh, the political uh, circumstances that we're in right now, all of it. So we need to guard against this always, but maybe especially now. So let's ask ourselves, what's the, what's the state of our heart towards not just God, but also towards one another? In our homes, there's a danger of disunity in our homes as well. What's the state of your, ho- your heart towards your spouse, your siblings, your children, your parents? What about towards one another in the church? What about the people you don't click with as well? The people who have a different opinion on some things than you do. Don't let, don't let annoyance build up. Don't let resentment build up or, or anger build up. Don't let your, your heart uh, prompt you to say words that are going to hurt and harm others. We need to root out uh, any trace of this anger towards one another. All these things, uh, brothers and sisters, from both these lists that we see here, lust, greed, idolatry, anger, lies, and uh, Paul, Paul includes a catch-all here, things like these, all other sin, we must put them off and put them to death. I think we see this, don't we? I think we see that we agree we need to be doing this. We need to be fighting this war against our sin, or we'll never grow as Christians, as individuals, or as a church. We see the, we see the danger of sin. But the question, at least for me, is how can, how can we get real change? How can I get real change in my life? How can I really put to death more and more the lifestyle of the old man of this earth? Well, that's our second point, uh, verses 9b through 11. Talk about how we must do this and we can do this because we have put on the new man, the man of heaven. This is, again, this is where the gospel makes all the difference. Without the gospel, all we have here is condemnation. we, We read the law here, we read this list of things to be working on, and it's a death sentence for us apart from Christ. There's a, there's a saying, a, a short little saying often attributed to John Bunyan that puts this memorably. He says this, Run, John, and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. He's saying the law says do this and work and, and fulfill the law, but it doesn't give me the ability to do it. But the gospel 
bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel of God's grace doesn't just save us, it's what keeps us progressing in holiness as we go on to glory. It's the gospel that gives us the strength to put sin to death. And that's, that's what we see as Paul goes on in this text. No sooner has he laid out for us how we must put off sin, but he turns again to this gospel. Verses 9 and 10, he tells us, it's what he's been saying throughout this letter, you've died to sin, you've been made alive in Christ. You've put off the old man already. It's already happened. You've put off the old man and you've already put on the new man. The imagery there is of a change of clothes, right? The the, the filthy, stained rags of the old man and the old sinful habits of this world have been stripped off. This has happened to you. They've They've been stripped away from you and you've been clothed with new, clean, fresh clothes. And this is what we call the great exchange. Right? My old sinful identity, who I was in Adam, a sinner under God's wrath, in the failed sin, sinful way of, of man, my identity as part of this world system of opposition and rebellion against God, that's died. That identity is, is dead now. And it's been stripped away from me like dirty clothes. And Christ took it. He took that. He put it on. And He bore God's wrath for it in my place. And in its place, He gave me the clothes of the heavenly man, the clothes of righteousness, that I might stand before God and receive all the blessings of the covenant of grace. Just beautiful, spotless, stainless, pure clothes. I'm alive in Him by His resurrection. He paid the price that I owed, and He gave me the reward that He was owed. That's the gospel. Why, why is Paul saying this here? What's, what's his logic? He, he's, he's saying, now that this has happened, this has already happened to you, are you going to go back to the habits of that old man? You've, you've, you've put on the new, clean clothes of the heavenly man, of Christ. Are you going to go back and dig the old, dirty rags out of the trash and put them on again? Right? The, the sinful habits of the world, you're gonna di- they've been buried. Are you going to dig them up? And put them back on. Look with me at uh, verses 9b through 10a. He says this, Since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. It looks there like he's contradicting what he's been saying in a way. In verse 8, what did he say? He said, You must put off all these. Now he says, Because you have put them off. There's already this apparent contradiction earlier in verse 5 when he said, put to death your members which are on the earth. Because in verse 3 he said, you died to sin. Well, which is it, Paul? Did we already die or do we need to put things to death? Did we already put off the old man or do we need to put off the old man now? Paul is saying this. He's saying, In Christ, you already died. In Christ, God already did this to you. He clothed you with the new clothes of the heavenly man. So you need to be who you are. That's the logic here. Be who you are. Don't be who you were. Be who God has declared you to be. Walk according to who he's already made you to be. Well, what does that mean? Who who are we now? Verse 10 tells us, you've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
This is who we are now in Christ. We are renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. When, when that's uh, talking, of course, about the image of God, and that drives us back to Genesis 1.27. Man is made in God's image, we read in, in, the, in the very beginning. And when man falls into sin, of course, uh, he doesn't lose completely that image of God that he bears. That is what man and women are. We are God's image, most basically. But something is lost in the fall. The, the, the aspect of that image that is, that, that is reflecting the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, that is lost. When, when man fell, that holiness is gone. So, so man, after the fall, is still supposed to bear God's image, still does bear God's image, but, but in a sense he's continually defacing that image by his sin. That's the, that's the great horror of sin. It's a constant defacing of the image of God in man. But Paul says, in Christ, we've been remade in the image of our Creator. We've put on the new man. We're being renewed in knowledge after God's image. So God is, is renovating us. He's restoring what was lost and ruined in the fall. He's making us who we were meant to be in the very beginning, the very image of God. And, and the focus of that work, we've already seen this in Colossians, is knowledge. That's what he focuses in on here. Over in Ephesians, he talks about righteousness and holiness in a very similar way over Ephesians 4.24. Here he says, he's talking, he wants to focus in on this idea of being renewed in knowledge in the image of God. And as we saw last Lord's Day, there's a focus on the mind already in this chapter. Paul says in 3.2, set your mind on things above. Here he says you're being renewed in knowledge. So there's a, there's a mental component of this. There's an aspect of we need to be thinking about the things of God, setting our minds on the things of heaven, uh, being renewed in our minds and in our thinking. And Paul is saying the old knowledge... Uh, the, the, the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of, of the world's way of thinking and living, that needs to be gutted out. That needs to be gutted out like, like the rottenness that it is. The old building has to be totally cleaned out from the inside out and, and replaced with new knowledge, the, the knowledge of, of holiness, of how, to, of how to walk before God in a way that pleases Him. Knowledge of Christ, knowledge of faith and obedience. Brothers and sisters, two things uh, as we consider this. If your faith is in Christ, we need to see if our faith is in Christ, this is already happening to us. That's what verse 10 tells us. It's a reality. It's not something we can do for ourselves. We can't renew our minds by ourselves. We can't renovate the image of God in ourselves by ourselves. We don't have the ability to or the resources to. Think about Adam. God makes him in his image. Did Adam make himself in his image originally? No, God had to do that work for him. Any more can we remake ourselves in the image of God? Absolutely not. This is God's work. Only God can make and remake man in his image. And at the same time, as we've already seen in this verse, is what do we read? These commands, seek, set your mind on the things above, put to death the old man, put off the old man. So it's God's work. It's the work that God is doing, and it's His work to remake us in the image of God, but He calls us to do it as well, to set our minds on it and to pursue it with everything we have. 
That's how grace works in sanctification. It's, it's God's work, but it's His work in us. It's something that He enables us to do more and more as we fill ourselves up with a new knowledge. So let's take a look at ourselves and our, our hearts and our lives in light of this passage. What, what needs to go? What do we need to strive by God's grace to gut out of our lives? What habits of sin uh, uh, need, need to be torn out and thrown away? What needs to be brought in in place of those things? This is the work only God can do, so let's pray for it. Pray for Him to strengthen us as we seek to obey Him in it. So this is what it means to be clothed with a new man. This is who we are now. You're in Christ. You're being renewed in knowledge after the image of God. But finally, uh, we also see here that this isn't just about me. This isn't just about you. This isn't just on an individual level. The scope is, is bigger than our, than our personal sanctification here. We already saw this as we, as we looked at the list of sins Paul describes, um, especially the second list. They're sins against each other. They're sins that separate us from each other. Sins that separate and divide people and families and in the church. And as Paul describes the new man here, he's not just thinking about individuals. He's thinking about the new man as a body, as, as a corporate whole, the new man of heaven as he is in Christ. So the new man is really not just me in Christ, it's the whole people of God in Christ. And so in verse 11, Paul turns to highlight something that is uh, extremely significant for the body as a whole as we strive to put off the old man, not just in ourselves, but together as a church. So he's, he's still telling us here the why and the how of putting off the old man, putting to death this lifestyle characterized by sin. But now he's telling us what this looks like in the church together with one another. And this is what he says about that in verse 11. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This verse is essential for our life together, brothers and sisters. This is, this is the, the lifeblood of real church unity and fellowship and togetherness as a church. It, we have to see this and grasp it if we're going to be successful as a church in putting off the old man, not just on an individual level. The sins that separate us, the sins of anger and bitterness and resentment, this verse is our hope for putting these things to death. This is what this verse is saying. Ethnic, cultural, and social distinctives don't define you, and therefore, they don't divide you. Ethical, cultural, and social distinctives don't define you, and therefore, they don't divide you. Paul runs through a whole bunch of things here that define and therefore divide people in his day in the world. There's Greeks and there's Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised. To the Jewish mind, uh, those, those were the only categories. You were either a Greek or a Jew, a Gentile or a Jew. Either you were ethnically Jewish and therefore you were part of God's chosen people, or, or you were not. Gentiles could, 
could, uh, could come in and, and participate in aspects of the life of the Jewish covenant community, but they weren't allowed uh, uh, into the inner sanctuary of the temple. They were limited to the outer court. They, they were welcome to worship the Lord, but it was kind of a second-class thing. That division was fundamental for the Jews. It defined them, and therefore it threatened in the new church as the Gentiles were coming in, it threatened to divide these parts of the church. Paul says, this is no more. Christ has, has called the Gentiles to himself. He said that back in chapter 1. Both Jews and Gentiles are now defined by who they are in Christ, and so they cannot be divided by the things that are not part of that identity. So Greeks and Jews. Paul then points out uh, barbarians and Scythians. These are groups that the Greeks, in turn, uh, looked down on. They saw them as less cultured, as, 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 as rough, violent, second class. And the Scythians, in particular, were infamous for brutality. They were seen as the enemies of Greek culture. So Paul's already said, Jews, you cannot be prejudiced against the Gentiles. And, and now he's taking aims at the, the Gentiles, the Greeks. He's saying, you can't be prejudiced against barbarians and Scythians. Your identity isn't in your cultural heritage or your language or your ethnicity. It's not in your skin color. It's not in where you're from. These things don't define you. Therefore, they don't divide you if you are in Christ. And then Paul says, there's neither slave nor free. That cuts across uh, class lines, your position in society, your, your, your wealth, your prominence, your what kind of house you have, what kind of car you drive, where you buy your clothes, those things don't define you. What defines you is who you are in Christ. Well, what is it that threatens to divide us in our church? What is it that threatens to divide us uh, in our own families? What are the things that we define ourselves by that take a kind of hold on us and, and define us in a way that they should not do the world defines, uh, defines ourselves by all these things that Paul mentions here. But we are to be different. We're to put to death the world's way of thinking and living and its habits. We are defined by who we are in Christ. Not that those other things don't still matter to us, but they no longer define who I am before God and who I am before you. Christ defines that now. Paul says Christ is all. He's the defining factor, the defining reality. He's what determines who I am in the final count. None of these other things. We are in Christ. That's the most significant thing about me. That's the most significant reality for all of us. Christ is everything and He is in us. Brothers and sisters, the more we come to see this for, for ourselves and also for each other, that, that Christ it defines me and also He defines you, the more we will put to death the sins that threaten to divide us and the more we will become what we already are, the new man in Christ. That's the goal. That we take off these dirty old clothes of the sinful habits of this world, of who we used to be, and that we put on what we've already been clothed with, which is Christ the new lifestyle according to Christ, the new habits according to Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us uh, endeavor after this by God's grace. Let us not be who we were. Let us be who we are in Christ. Let's pray.